All right, well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our series called Taking Your Place at the City Gate. Last week, we began uh, by looking at the blessings that come when the gatekeepers at our city gates are godly and have godly biblical values, right? And we looked at the negative things that happen when, in a culture when uh, the gatekeepers forsake those and ignore those values. And then finally, we began to look at what it means to be salt and light in the world, especially when others at the gate don't want you to shine that light, right? When the, when the light's not welcome. But I can tell you, as for me, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. All right. All right, you can groan. Go ahead. That, that, was, that was a bad dad joke. All right. But today, we're just going to focus on one thing, right? As we continue this journey together, looking at the idea of being light in the city gates, is this kind of one idea that we're going to look at today. As we're seeking to be light in our world and in our communities, as we're seeking to strengthen the city gates and bring a blessing of God to our culture, and especially as we're, we're seeking God's help and blessing and God's favor for ourselves and for our families and for our communities and, and for our nation, right? There's this heart attitude that first we need towards God and that we need to promote in our culture. It's an attitude of humility and repentance towards God because God responds to humility. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me illustrate that for you this way. Imagine with me, it's Sunday, right? And on Sunday night, if you had a teenager, maybe some of you have had teenagers in the past, maybe some of you have teenagers now, you had a teenager and they said to you, uh, hey, mom, dad, next Saturday, I want to go hang out with my friends all day. Would that be okay? And you said, well, yeah, that would be fine because, you know, your friends are great and I like you to have fun and all that. However, your room is a disaster. And so as long as you clean up your room before Saturday, you can go. And so then Monday and Tuesday, you look and you notice like nothing much is happening with this disaster area of a room that your teen has. And then, so Wednesday, you start to begin to drop a few hints. Like, you know, you know, um, you got to get your room clean if you want to go out on Saturday and all of that. And, uh, and your teen looks at you and says, yeah, 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 I got it under control. And then keep scrolling through their Instagram feed, right? And uh, then Thursday, you notice nothing else happens. So on Friday, you start to get really kind of overt about it and say, you know, listen, if you don't have this room cleaned, you're not going anywhere tomorrow. And, and your teen rolls their eyes at you and says, all right, all right, you have to keep telling me, I got it, I got it. So finally, Saturday comes, and the room is still a disaster area. Some of you are nodding at me, right? Like, yeah, you've experienced this before. And uh, I hope I'm not bringing any flashbacks to any of you or anything like that, right? The room is still a disaster area, and your teen comes down and says, hey, can you bring me to my friends now? And you say, no, your room is a disaster area. I told you all week long that you could go if your room was clean. Your room is not clean. Now, how would you react? If your teen then looked at you and started to complain and whine and say, well, this just isn't fair. You are really mean. I, you, you don't care about me at all. I hate you. And then stormed off. I mean, would you all, all of a sudden say, uh, well, you know, since you put it that way, maybe I'll bring you. No, you wouldn't say that. Or, or if they just like rolled their eyes in disgust and hopped and puffed and ran off and slammed their door, you know, and started a cold war with you. Are you about to take them? No. But... What if they said to you, Boy, you know, Dad, Mom, you're right. I, uh, you did tell me all week long to clean my room, and you gave me fair warning, and I just ignored you and disrespected you. And, uh, you know, you're right. This one's on me. 
And uh, I don't deserve at all to go hang out with my friends today. As a matter of fact, I don't really deserve at all to hang out with my friends for the rest of the month. So I'll tell you what, I'm just going to go clean my room right now. How would you react? Well, I can tell you how you'd react. You'd keel over and have a heart attack. But after that, after we did CPR and we revived you, how would you react? Well, you'd probably say, you know what? Um, listen, if you work hard at that, you can get this done in an hour. And after it's nice and clean, then I'll take you, right? And uh, because it really, it's not about their friends. They, maybe uh, they have good friends and, you know, you want them to have a good time and all of that. Uh, because your heart is for them, right? You just had something you needed done, right? Well, it turns out that we are not so unlike our Heavenly Father. And there's this story that illustrates this in the book of Joel, chapter 2. Now, we're going to be looking especially at verses 12 to 17. But let me set it up for you a little bit. Let's look at the context, right? Because remember the rule of context is context rules, right? If you really want to understand the passage, you need to understand its whole context. So let's just uh, look at a little bit of this context, right? So we think, well, we know the book was written by Joel, and we think it was written... Uh, around the year 870 B.C., near the beginning of the reign of this King Joash. Now, Joash was only a boy when he became king. But most of his rule was characterized by godliness until the end, you know, when he began to turn away from God and the people began to turn away from God, right? He's God-honoring. Now, in the first chapter, Joel describes this terrible plague of locusts that had come upon them and it had destroyed everything green. If you know anything about a plague of locusts or locusts forming, they destroy everything green in their path. They devastate agriculture and they, they eat everything. And, uh, uh, and this wasn't just an ancient phenomenon. It still happens today. If you just go Google uh, locust swarm, you can find occasions today when there were locust swarms that devastated an area. And uh, so this plague that's described by Joel seems to be particularly bad. I mean, the way he describes it, there's nothing left. All the crops are gone. All the vines are destroyed. There's no grapes. There's no olives. There's no wheat. There's no barley. There's nothing um, in, in the storehouses. The figs and the pomegranates and the apples, they're all, all the fruit is gone. And this has completely disrupted their society. Verse 11, it says that they're in despair and they're, they're grieving. And verse, verse 12, he says that the people's joy has withered away. Verse 13, he says that the priests are in mourning and wailing because there's not enough even for the grain offerings and for the drink offerings uh, for the house of God. And so that means that their religious practices and the way they did religion was disrupted. Verse 16, it says that food had been cut off. Verse 17 kind of indicates there wasn't any hope for any more food anytime soon. And then in verse 18, it even says that the sheep and the cattle seem to be confused. They're just wandering about, milling about, because the, these locusts have eaten even all the grass of the field, and there's no fields for them uh, to graze in. And that would mean that they were in danger of losing their flocks and their herds as well. And then, to top it off, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it looks like there was a drought at the same time, because verse 20 says, the streams of water have dried up. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a difficult difficult time. It's a terrible plague, a terrible time, a terrible and unexpected and unwelcome disruption to their lives. Sometimes things come in that we have no control over that disrupt our lives and our culture and our society. 
And this one was so bad, it says in verse 2, that he implies that nothing like this had ever happened before in the entire history of their nation since they came into the promised land. The land of milk and honey was now a dry and barren wasteland. Now, God had warned them about this possibility. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, when they were about to come into the promised land, um, God gathered all of them together, and he gave them all of these blessings, listed all of these blessings, if they would serve God and honor the covenant, and all of these curses that would come upon them if they dishonored God and left the covenant. And it says it this way, he said, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil, because the olives will drop off. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. And now this very thing had happened to them. And so now look at Joel's prophetic response in verse 14. He says this, Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Listen, when you are in trouble, or when your culture is in trouble, or when society is in trouble, or a community, or a nation, the best response is to cry out to the Lord. And not just sort of as individuals scattered all over the place. He said it's everyone. Not just for pastors and elders. But look at what what does the verse say here. All who live in the land should cry out to the Lord. Fathers and mothers should cry out to the Lord. Sons and daughters should cry out to the Lord. The farmer in the country should cry out to the Lord. The craftsman in the city should cry out to the Lord. The lowliest servant and the highest official should all cry out to the Lord to the Lord. When things go wrong in our communities and in our country, everyone should cry out to the Lord. Your average ordinary citizen should cry out to the Lord. Mayors and town council members and representatives and and state senators and congressmen and the president and the vice president and the Supreme Court members should all cry out to the Lord. That's what God would like to see. All who live in the land should cry out to the Lord. Solomon said it this way at the dedication to the temple. He said, when there's no rain because the people have sinned, or when famine or plagues come to the land, or locusts or grasshoppers, or whatever disaster happens. But when they turn towards God and give praise to your name and turn from their sin, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to you. Say, what's the scripture up here above us say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and... Yes. Amen. Amen. When things are going bad, that is the time to turn to God. To turn towards God in humility and repentance. And you know what? We've experienced that in our country. I mean, I don't know how many of you know, just a few years after the pilgrims got here in 1623, they were experiencing a great drought. They didn't have any water. And William Bradford, their longtime governor, wrote in his journal, he said, they set apart 
a solemn day of humiliation to seek the Lord by humble and fervent prayer in this great distress. And he went on to write that that same evening, it began to rain with such sweet and gentle showers as gave them cause of rejoicing and blessing God. And then you know what they did after God answered? They set apart another day to give thanks to God. And many times throughout our history, people and leaders have called for sacred assemblies and, and humbling ourselves before God. One of those happened during the days of the Civil War, during the most terrible times in our country. President Lincoln issued a proclamation and a day of fasting and prayer that read in part like this. Here it is, a direct quote. He said, Whereas it is fit and becoming in all people at all times, to acknowledge and revere the supreme government of God, to bow in humble submission to his chastisements, to confess and deplore their sins and transgressions in the full conviction that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to pray with all fervency and contrition for the pardon of their past offenses and for a blessing upon their present. And he went on, whereas our own beloved country, once by the blessing of God, united, prosperous, and happy, is now afflicted with faction and civil war. It is peculiarly fit for us to recognize the hand of God in this terrible visitation and in sorrowful remembrance of our own faults and crimes as a nation and as individuals to humble ourselves before him and to pray for his mercy, to pray that we may be spared further punishment though most justly deserved. And finally, he went on to say, Therefore I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do appoint the last Thursday of September next as a day of humiliation, prayer, and fasting for all the people of the nation to the end that the united prayer of the nation may ascend to the throne of grace and bring down plentiful blessings upon our country. You know... We used to know how to acknowledge our national sins before God and humble ourselves before Him. I mean, we used to know how to acknowledge the supreme government of God, that He was over us, that any, any rulership we did in any city gates was ultimately answerable to God Almighty. But in many ways, the gateways of our culture have lost that, have lost that humility. I mean, today, many of the gatekeepers ignore him, and not only ignore him, but openly mock and defy the God of heaven. I mean, if you don't believe me, if you don't, if you don't believe me on this point, let me point you to the fact that one of the main groups that is seeking political power in our country now, after purging God from their official platform eight years ago, this year removed the words, under God, as they recited the Pledge of Allegiance. That was a defiant fist-shaking moment at God. Now, no one should understand me here to be saying anything like our hope is in any political party. It's not. What I'm saying is that in the gateways of our society, our government, our education, our entertainment, and in family, we need a return to God. We don't need a declaration that we can do it without Him. Amen? We don't need a declaration that we will no longer be under Him. We need a declaration that we need Him. That we need to return to God in all the city gates of our culture. And so here in our passage, Joel is calling them to that. And there's good reason. 
in the next verse, verse 15, he says this. He says, Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Now hold on just a second here. You know, I think if I was there standing next to Joel when he said that, you know, I think I would have bumped him a little bit and said, Hey, Joel, buddy, um, I noticed that you just suddenly went to the future tense there. I mean, didn't you mean to stay in the present tense? Didn't you mean to say that this is the day of the Lord, that, 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 that God's judgment has come, that destruction has come? But no, he uses the future tense. He's saying, you know, you need to have a sacred assembly here. You need to have a returning to God um, and call on the name of the Lord because another judgment is on its way. I mean, just when you thought nothing could get worse, that it was as bad as it could get, the prophet says, you know, it's about to get worse. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, he describes this day that is coming. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, the situation was already desperate. And if you're there, you'd think that, you know, it just couldn't get any worse than it already is. But now the prophet is saying, it's about to guess worse, and the day is close at hand. And then he goes on to describe what this will look like in most of the, um, the rest of uh, verses 1 through 11. And most think it's this prophecy of uh, invading armies who are about to invade the land. And when you read it, the vision is terrifying. And he ends by saying this. The day of the Lord is great. This is verse 11. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And it's kind of like in the prophet's mind, there's this open question as to whether anyone can survive. But then, all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, in the middle of all of that, right in the middle of going from the frying pan into the fire, there's this burst of hope beginning in verse 12. And this is really what I want to unpack with you this morning. So let's look at it. Well, let's read verses 12 to 14 first and unpack that, and then we'll go on. He says, even now, declares the Lord, even now, in spite of all of this stuff that you've seen and what you've heard may be coming, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings, and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Now here the prophet offers them some hope. God, God offers them some much-needed hope. And I want you to notice a few things about this hope as we unpack this. I want you to notice the what, the why, and the how of, of God's hope in these verses. First, the what. And the what is that there is any hope to speak of at all. That the impending calamity can be avoided. He says, who knows, he may turn. He may relent. He may not send this next disaster. Not only that, there's even a hope here that the previous disaster may be reversed. He says he may leave behind a blessing. More grain, more crops, more harvest, more fruit of the vine, more grapes, more olives, more, more offerings before the Lord. 
I mean, there's a possibility that their lives could get back to normal. There's this possibility God offers that their, their, their religious expression could get back to normal. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. This ray of hope, a possibility. That's the what? It's the hope that God offers. How many of you know we can use some hope from God right now? In our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our culture. And how many of you know that the real source of hope is God Almighty? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But how many of you noticed that in the midst of all of our current crises, many people seem to be turning everywhere but to God for hope? I mean, some people are placing their hope in the government. The government will save us. You know, some people are placing their hope in science. Science will save us. I mean, how many of you have heard some of our leaders say something along this line? No, science will save us. Our hope is in science. You know, I believe, I trust science. How many of you have heard those types of things? You know what, can I tell you, as a Christian, you know, I have no problem with science. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, science and medicine are just the study of the world as God created it. And, and at their best, um, they're, 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 they're noble. And they're compassionate. And that's what God wants them to be, right? Uh, and uh, I consider every medical advancement that improves the lives uh, of people to be an expression of the mercies of God towards us, right? No problem with science at all. But can I tell you, science will not save us. Our government will not save us. For just like in Joel's day, we don't know when one calamity that is solved might be followed by a different calamity or upheaval or unrest. Government is not our savior, not our provider, not our healer, not our hope giver. Our hope comes only from the Lord. That's the what that's offered here. Hope from God. And then the why. Also in this passage is the why. Why is this hope even possible? I mean, the people had turned away from God. They turned away from the covenant, turned their backs towards God, and weren't living according to His will. They'd forsaken the Word of God, and their land was lying in ruins, and another calamity was right on the doorstep. So why is there even hope possible in this? You know, sometimes I look at our world and I wonder, is there any hope possible? It's only possible because of who our God is. Is because of the nature of our God, because of what He's like. Look at these scriptures here. What is God like? It says that our God is gracious. Our God is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's a God who relents from sending calamity. You know, there's something that we need to know and understand about the heart of of God as we engage our culture, as we pass through our city gates and, and sometimes uh, sit and have influence at our city gates. God would rather not send calamity. He would rather not send... He doesn't rejoice in destruction. He's not quick to send out punishments. You know, sometimes people get the idea when they hear about the wrath of God and judgments of God, you know, that God's up there in heaven and just kind of waiting eagerly for someone to mess up, you know, so that he can bring the boom down on you. So that he can pour out the fire and brimstone. That God's just kind of eager to do that. You know what? That's not the heart of God. 
I mean, think about it for a second. When Jesus was here, and, and there was a city that completely just rejected him. And James and John said to him, hey, hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire and brimstone on this city? And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. It's not the heart of God. God takes no pleasure in judgment or destruction. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And so because of that, he offers this hope, this possibility that blessing can return. You know, I have to be honest with you. Sometimes I look around and I, and I look at the march of ungodliness in our culture and how, how ungodliness is expressed in the city gates and how many of our city gates seem to be run by and controlled by people who are now shaking their fists at God and defying God. And you know, sometimes I wonder if there's any hope. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm just one little light. You're just one little light. Even our, even our church here, we're just one little light, one little lighthouse. You know, and it can feel like a tidal wave of immorality sometimes. A, a tidal wave, a tsunami of, of immorality. And, and it can feel like there's no hope. We're just one little lighthouse in the middle of a tsunami. But then you read a passage like this. And you realize, you know, it may seem impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Why? Because of the nature of the heart of our God. He gives us a possibility, a way out, a way of escape. Our hope lies in God. And the reason we even have this hope is because of the gracious, compassionate heart of God. That's the why. And that brings us to the how. Both for the individual and for the community or for the country. How, how is this hope realized? We'll go back to verse 12. He says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. The how is found in a return to God. In Joel's day, the Israelites, they had left God. They forsook the covenant. I mean, they, they continued with all their outward expressions, the outward religious expressions, but their hearts were far from God. They had left the word of God. And God says they need to return to Him. And I want you to notice two things about this return to Him. First, He says it should be with fasting and weeping and mourning. That is, acknowledge the seriousness of the departure from God. Get serious with God. Joel is telling them, you know, you've angered a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. If you want the hope of Him relenting, if you want the return of blessings He's offering, then acknowledge the seriousness of of the departure. Grieve over the departure. First they drifted from God. Then they departed from God completely. And then they began defying God. And you know what? That's generally the process that happens when a culture moves away from the Word of God. First a drift, then a departure, then a defiance. Grieve over the departure, he says. Be like Lot who Peter says was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct and the lawlessness that he saw and was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Return with fasting and weeping and mourning over sin. And then secondly, he says, return with all your heart. Not a shallow return, but a return that goes to the very core of your being. What does that look like? All your heart. You know what it looks like? It looks like on your wedding day, when you stand there and you say you're forsaking all others. 
It's the heart that has a first love kind of experience with our Savior, that loves God with all the heart. It's the heart that wakes up every morning saying, God, how am I going to love the Lord my God with all of my heart and with all of my strength and with all of my soul and with all of my mind this morning? It's the heart that wakes up day after day after day saying, God, how am I going to seek first your kingdom today? God, I'll let you worry about all the other things, but I'm going to seek first your kingdom today. That's the heart that returns to God with all of its heart. And then he says this, he says, rend your heart and not your garments. You know, in ancient Israel, they had this, um, when something bad happened, people would often tear their clothes as an outward sign of what was going on inwardly within them. Like in the book of Esther, when, when Haman announced that all the Jews were going to be killed, and says Mordecai tore his clothes as an outward sign of what was happening inwardly, and he went out weeping and wailing and mourning in the streets of the city. He tore his clothes. But the gesture often became just kind of a rote, meaningless, outward expression. Like when Caiaphas tore his robes at the, robes at the trial of Jesus. It was just an outward act. There was no genuine humility before God. And Joel is saying, you know, don't be like that. Don't return to God that way. Don't offer meaningless and shallow outward expressions. Don't just say religious things while you do repugnant things. Don't be like those people Jesus spoke about when he said, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Instead, he says, return with all your heart. The hope of renewed blessings is the what of this passage. The compassion of God is the why. And the return to God is the how. Can I tell you, more than anything else, our culture, our communities, our, our county, our, co- our country needs a humble return to God. And you know what? That return has to start somewhere. I mean, with someone. Look at verse 15 of this, of this chapter. He says, again, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Now, Earlier in verse 1 of this, of this chapter, he, he had said uh, the same thing, blow the trumpet in Zion. But that time it was announcing that this judgment that was about to come, this devastation that was about to come. But this time it's different. This time it blow the trumpet to announce a return to God. To call people back to God, to express humility and repentance. Going on, he says, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. I mean, so look who this calling is for. It's for everybody. I mean, he says, it's for the elders. I mean, so if you're older here this morning, you know, don't start saying things like, you know, well, I'm old and my day is past. You know, it's up to somebody else to take over now. No, let the elders of God's people lead us in love and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say Amen. I said, let those who have been serving God for a long time, the elders of God's people, lead us in love and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's also, it's for the children and for the youth here, it says in this passage. If you're a teenager, if you're a child, don't be left out. Don't just be dragged along wherever the winds, you know, want to go. You know, you, you can't trust in just you, your, your parents' relationship with God. You know, you need your own relationship with God, your own passionate relationship with God. So don't just go where all the culture goes, right? In your schools, instead of being influenced, be an influencer in your schools and, and in, in your communities. 
Don't let others put your light out. It's for the elders. It's for the children and for the teens. And it's for young adults as well. For the newly married as well. And the, those with young children. He says, don't put it off. Don't say, hey, later. You know, when, when my life starts to get a little bit less hectic. Maybe when my children are grown. You know, then I'll really serve the Lord, right? Don't wait for them. Because you know what? That, that greatest commandment that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the Hebrew, in chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where that's found, that commandment goes on. and says, These commands that I give you shall be on your heart and on your mind, and you shall teach them to your children all day long. Love the Lord your God with all your heart now. Return, he says. Because the Bible says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The call to return is for everyone, for individuals, for communities, and for a nation. You know, when an individual turns back to God, comes back to God, an individual experiences grace and mercy and kindness from God and newness of life from God. When a nation turns back to God, it results in God's favor returning to the nation. Let me show this to you in our passage, and then we'll close. Going on in verse 18. He says, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them. And so it appears here that that some time has gone past um, since this calling of of this assembly and and these verses here. Because God's replying to them. He's replying to what uh, happened at the sacred assembly and what's continuing to happen in them. And he says, I am sending you grain. New wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. And he goes on, I will drive the northern horde from, far from you. That is, he will drive that invading army far away. And he says, be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains, because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floor will be filled with grain. The vats overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you. For the years the locusts have eaten. You will have plenty to eat. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God. Who has worked wonders for you. Hallelujah. Amen. Apparently, the people of Joel's day experienced a genuine turning back to God. And it resulted in the blessing of God returning to them. You know, right now, as we look at our culture, and we look out at the gateways of our culture, you know, it's still an open question as to whether there'll be any return to God. I was encouraged this week as we saw uh, an intense prayer, all-day prayer meeting at the National Mall. You know, there have been times I've seen um, kind of uh, national calls to prayer that sounded a little bit more like uh, half-hearted things. But I was encouraged, because this, this felt like more like a deep thing. It's all-day People were calling out to God. In some ways, it doesn't feel like there'll be a return. In some ways, it seems impossible. However, it has happened before. In the days of Joel, in the days of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, in the days of King Josiah, a remarkable turning to the Lord. And it's happened many times throughout history as well. And many times in our country, when things were bad and bleak, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and other revivals as well. Watch this short two-minute video just before we close. Since the dawn of time, 
man has sought a touch from heaven, only to fall away again and again. Yet in every age, men have risen up and called us back with one hope, to see mankind unite in the spirit of prayer and revival and commune with God once again. These great men recognized our fallen state and called us to humility that leads to repentance, confession that brings forgiveness, and prayer with God's mighty hand of favor and protection. In 1857, God used an ordinary clothing salesman named Jeremiah Lampier. In a small room in the heart of New York City, he invited others to simply pray for one hour. At noon on September 23rd, Jeremiah started on his knees, alone. By the end of the hour, he had been joined by five more men. That was the beginning of the Layman's Prayer Revival. In a few short months, meetings had sprung up all around, with daily attendance growing to 10,000. Today, our nation is nearly as divided as it was then, just prior to the Civil War. Our one hope is to gather pastors and Christian leaders to stand united to awaken our churches, communities, and our nation once again through the power of prayer. This is our wake-up call. Now is the time for repentance, time to turn back to God. Which leads to reconciliation with God and with each other. Bringing about restoration, a healing of our relationships and our land. Then revival, a move of God like we've never seen before. A God-led reformation. Amen. You know that, that prayer revival occurred on the brink of one of the darkest times in our history. Slavery was a blight and a cancer on our country. There were deep divisions over it, and we're on the brink of civil war. And then shortly after this prayer meeting began, there was a run on banks, bank failures that led to uh, massive unemployment in our country as well. It was a desperate time, but God somehow ignited a spark of revival. Eventually 10,000 people a day praying and gathering just in New York City alone. But that wasn't where it ended. It spread across the country. Historians tell us that at the height of this revival, 50,000 people per week were coming to faith in Jesus. And that all told in 1858 and 59, there were over a million conversions to Jesus that came as a result of this prayer revival. And it led to an influence revivals that um, started in Wales and Ireland and Scotland and England and India as well. God can do it again. God is a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, who would rather re- relent from sending calamity. And I don't know what the whole country is going to do, but I know what my heart is. And I hope I know what your heart is. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Not just for a Sunday expression, but to love Him every day with all of your heart. That's a whole Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday kind of experience. So, would you bow in prayer with me? Here's what we're going to do. I know this week we're going to continue participating in prayer. I encourage you again to come to our prayer meeting tonight to seek God for our communities. 
And not only that, but I just, you know, Bible says take it seriously, right? So what we're going to do this week, I'm going to extend our, our, our lunchtime prayer Monday to Thursday this week. And open the doors of the church again if you want to come. Again, uh, come during those times or join us online. We'll live stream it. Or just from where you are, if you can spend a little bit of time praying with us. And then before we close, I just want to ask this with every eye bowed and every head closed. You know, um, I don't believe in, in any type of false guilt or anything like that. When you're, when you, when you're in the will of God, when, you, when, you're, when you're under the grace of God, all your sins are forgiven. But I believe that God is challenging us and maybe challenging someone or a few someones here this morning. If you would say to me, you know, Pastor Paul, I just want to confess this morning that, you know, maybe I come to church Sunday morning, but, but that's about it. You know, I mean, my relationship with Jesus, I, if I'm honest uh, between myself and him, you know, it has meant very little to me um, from Monday to Saturday. You know, but I hear God's call this morning and under the anointing of the Holy Spirit here. And I want to get back to a first love relationship with him. And with it, no one looking around right now, you say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. That's me. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that hand. Anyone else say, yeah, amen. Thank you for that hand. You say, that's me. You know, um, just being honest with God. You know, I mean, I've just been kind of uh, going through the motions here. You know, it hasn't meant much between Monday and uh, Saturday. Amen. Amen. Because when I ask, is anyone here or maybe even online who might say, you know what, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm hearing you. And I've never really had a relationship with God. I don't know what this grace and mercy that you're talking about uh, is. But you'd say, you know what? I, I, I realize I need Jesus in my life. That, that I can't save myself. That, that, that I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross and rose from the dead. And you're ready, maybe for the first time, to give your life to God. And you say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. Amen. Amen. What I'd like to do right now, I'm going to lead you all in prayer, both here and online. I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus as Savior. And it's not the end point. It's just a starting point to a life of loving Him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Will you all pray this prayer with me and after me? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I confess I can't save myself. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that he rose again from the grave. Jesus, I need you. Please be my Savior. Be my Lord. My Redeemer. Help me grow in you. And live by faith in you all the days of my life. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And my friends, I can tell you, if you've done that, whether here or whether online from your home, God has done everything that you've asked him to do. The Bible says old things have passed away and everything has become new. And I encourage all of us, whether we've been walking with God for um, uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years, or whether you're brand new with God, or whether you're just coming back to God now, to walk in love, passionate love, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him, God, how can I be light in the city gates that you put me in? Heavenly Father, God, we've heard your call this morning. God, as the body of Christ, God, we rejoice in your grace, in your blessings, God, in your mercies, in your kindness that's been expressed to us in Jesus on the cross. God, we rejoice in new life in Christ that you have given to us so freely. 
God, yet at the same time, God, our hearts break, our hearts grieve over the condition of our culture, God, of our communities. God, there's so much violence, there's so much immorality and sensuality, God, and deception. So, God, we humbly ask and we pray for a return to you to occur in our culture, God. We pray for a return to you at the city gates. God, enable us, empower us, God, to be your light. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you tremendously, fill you with grace and with his spirit as he makes you light in your world. In Jesus' name, amen.